Hey, this is Plain Spoken, and I'm Jeffrey Rickman. I'm a local licensed pastor in Oklahoma, and uh, the intent of this channel is to try and uh, be a part of the discourse in the United Methodist Church in a healthy and helpful way. Uh, I've been commenting on a number of things for a few months, and I just want to thank everybody for the support you've given, for the engagement, um, for uh, the corrections. I do say things wrong sometimes, and I, I want to be right. So um, anyway, this, this is a, a somewhat different kind of think piece uh, thing I've been wanting to do because there's uh, some rubber hitting the road on uh, discourse and the impact it has in my conference, um, as well as a couple others this Saturday, the 22nd, Oklahoma Annual Conference and Holston and Florida are going to have special called annual conferences to consider the disaffiliations of many churches. And so... Um, there are a lot of people watching to, to see how things go, and there are a lot of people praying that things will go well, and I'm one of them, but there are a lot of people who have a pattern of not considering or being prepared for worst-case scenarios. There are a lot of people who are guilty of wishful thinking to the point that whenever things happen at annual conference that they are not prepared for, they don't do well. And so my hope was that people would promote this this think piece that I'm recording now to consider sending it to delegates who are going to be participating in these special called conferences in the next few weeks because we do know some of the things that are going to be tried and strategized that I think I think everybody has good intentions and I don't want to malign anyone's intentions but I do think that there are some short-sighted things that are being promoted that um, people should at least see them for what they are whenever they're being promoted and make an educated decision about how to act whenever they come to the floor of annual conference. Um, I'm, of course, conservative, and I have my own views as to how I see things, and I'm not going to pretend this is the only way to see things, but I also can't pretend that I don't see things this way. And I don't see a lot of people modeling thinking through this well, at least not in video format. Um, I have been soliciting conversations around this. I wanted to have an interview conversational type with someone on the other side where we could kind of suss out uh, their beliefs and why they think the way they do. I have written a couple of people that have put out hostile postings about people like me, and in a non-defensive way, I, I, I just said, is there any way that you could be persuaded to talk with me on camera so that we could maybe help people think through these things better? And uh, while they were cordial, Privately, they were not willing. Um, so if, if you know of anyone who is willing from a centrist or liberal progressive position to argue with me um, in a polite fashion as to why it is that local churches should not be disaffiliating or why annual conferences are um, obliged to withhold local churches from disaffiliating, I think that's the conversation that needs to happen. So those are, that's the broad category that I'm going to be addressing in, in this video. It's as these conferences get together, there are some strong institutional pressures and ideological, theological pressures to entrap uh, local churches that have taken a vote to disaffiliate and to, to keep them in even though they don't want to be in. So um, just as a think piece, I, I did want to lift up uh, a couple posts uh, made by a guy in my conference uh, these are Facebook posts, um, so I'm just going to read them, and then we'll talk about them. So the first one, uh, you'll notice there aren't any names on here. I, I, I didn't want to 
implicate anybody or offend anybody. I'm not trying to stir up drama. This is just, this is a real thing. This is a real thing, and I don't want people thinking that I've just made this up or I'm, I'm fabricating uh, sentiments that really aren't there. This is from a retired clergy in my annual conference who used to be considered conservative but has been very vocal in being upset at conservatives who are disaffiliating from the annual conference. And so here's, here's what he says uh, in a couple Facebook posts. First one is, just because you do not want to stay in the UMC is not an ethical reason to take the church away from those who do not want to stay, who do want to stay in the UMC. So vote no. So what he's saying in this is that, uh, that we should refuse any disaffiliations from the denomination. Um, the, the other one that, that he wrote, and we'll come back to talk about that one. Let those who wish to stay in the UMC keep their church, vote no on all the disaffiliations. Thank you. Um, so both of these posts were deleted. I, I tried. I wanted to look them up again today uh, because I wanted to, to look through some of the comments. The thing is, he's not just representing his own beliefs here. There were a number of people, delegates to annual conference, that um, said, here, here, you know, I agree with this. And um, it's hard to say how popular these ideas are. A lot of people don't like things on Facebook, don't engage at all. Uh, the nightmare for someone like me is that someone reads this and goes, oh, yes, this is a, a seasoned, retired clergy. This is a, 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 a model of wisdom. I can trust this person. I, I'm going to vote with him. I think it would be a terrible mistake to vote with him. Um, I, so I got on there to, to look at these, and he's since taken them down. Um, I learned later that um, uh, at least one person who posted on these has now been unfriended and blocked by this person. This is, this is an area where there is not a lot of give and take. There are people who are posting this stuff, putting it out there, and there's not a respectful dialogue back and forth. There's just this, um, I'm going to characterize it as an irrational ideological position that is beyond scrutiny, that is on beyond questioning. And if we have people coming to annual conferences with that mindset, where there is no, I have nothing to learn from you, I have, I have nothing um, that I need to respect about you and your positions, if it's I'm right, you're wrong, I'm on the right side of history, you are one of the bad guys, we're, annual conferences are going to be really nasty. And I think that would just be an ignominious, really tragic end to a, a denomination that started off with great hopes. Um, the, the last thing, uh, after he took these down, I was, I was notified of one more thing that he said, and I, I blocked these names out, but he's, he's, he just wrote on the bottom here, I will be voting no on all the disaffiliations. Those faithful few who voted to stay in the United Methodist Church should continue to remain trustees of their property. No is the only honorable way to vote. Bless you. Uh, may you and your ministry remain, that, that, that part doesn't have anything to do with anything. Um, he's just being kind to a friend. Um, so what, what are the larger issues here? I, I wanted to spend a few moments on um, kind of steel manning him and, and what he's about, what he represents. Uh, steel manning is the practice of kind of like um, doing your best to, to help uh, your adversary to validate what you can and try and see things from their angle. I think anyone who's participating in a conversation has to be able to articulate a person's view before they, uh, hopefully I'm going to effectively dismantle it. Um, so this, this person here is representing um, what I would consider an institutionalist, loyalist 
um, view. He may or may not be a theological conservative like me, but as I, I think of him, I think of people of his generation who have given their life to the United Methodist Church professionally, um, who've spent years serving in various local churches, who have um, very much intertwined their own personal sense of identity with the institution of the United Methodist Church, uh, who were there in 1968 whenever it was founded under um, very optimistic auspices, hoping to be a large tent for a diverse group of people who were um, going to build the kingdom of heaven on earth, essentially, who were going to uh, participate in works of mercy across the world and and just become a, a beacon of hope to the world. Um, so, you know, as I'm trying to think of, of steel manning this position, you know, theologically there's a lot where in the Bible it's it's wrong to divide the body and to, to participate in schism. John Wesley himself wrote against um, unnecessary division in the body, and whenever you've read excerpts of his his sermon on the Catholic spirit, it just seems so clear to some people that we have to bear with one another, we have to stay together, we have to, um, uh, out, of, out of reverence for Christ and for those who have built up his church, we have to practice self-denial and regularly continue to bear with one another, even if it, it harms our consciences. And you know what? To a large degree, I would agree with that assessment. I do think that if, if, if it's all about you and your personal conscience, then the church just doesn't work. The church regularly requires for people to compromise, even sometimes on matters of conscience. You know, uh, Of course, the Protestant legacy is Martin Luther, here I stand, I can do no other, kind of this uncompromising position. But if you've, if you've ever served in a local church, you know it requires compromise. And from a certain perspective, you look at these churches and pastors and, and lay leaders disaffiliating, and you say, what a bunch of malcontents. What a bunch of ignorant bigots that just can't stand to have uh, um, their culture war picadillos not mir- mirrored in their church, and they're willing to divide along these political issues that are not essential for faith, um, they're willing to tear apart that which I and hundreds of people I've known and loved and respected along the years have built up, uh, have selflessly poured ourselves into. A lot of these people watched as these properties were donated by people in their estates whose whose dying hope was that the United Methodist Church would be a um, a flourishing beacon of, of 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 hope in the world. And so it's it's. You know, this isn't something that's far away from me. It's some, both of my parents are retired clergy. My grandfather was a, a DS in my annual conference. I carry a legacy of people who were very dedicated to the institution of the United Methodist Church. And, um, you know, as, as I talk to people of their generation, there's just a lot of real sadness about where it is. And it's very difficult for them to see people like me as something other than a divisive malcontent, you know? And so the temptation right on the front end, if you're a delegate at annual conference, is to view people like me who've, who've wanted to leave, who are very clear that it's a dysfunctional relationship, who just need to get out. It's, it's very tempting to see people like me as just um, trouble starters, uh, just people who've spread our, our malcontent. It's very tempting to see people uh, in groups like the, the IRD uh, Institute for Religion and Democracy, or Good News. It's it's very easy to say, oh, they just want to divide. They just want to 
um, ruin a good thing. And there's this kind of rose-tinted picture that gets projected by a lot of people um, that kind of forgets all of the fighting that's happened for decades and just says, you know, look at all this wonderful history and heritage. Look at all these wonderful people that we've had in our denomination. Look at all these wonderful ministries that we've done. Surely nothing can justify the division that we're seeing right now, and I just can't bear to allow it. So I, that's me. I'm, I'm sure I could spend a little more time steel manning it. I, I, it isn't that I don't sympathize with people who don't want to see disaffiliation. And if, if, there's, if there's anyone who thinks that right-leaning people or evangelicals or people who are disaffiliating are just callous and unmoved by the feelings of others, I would like to disabuse you of that notion. I, I, I think that that is just an easy way to disregard someone else's feelings. You can say, well, they don't care about my feelings, so I'm not going to care about theirs. And I, I don't think that that is a spiritually mature or helpful way um, or a Christian way to go through the world. I think that 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 we we show consideration for others. I just think that that's what Christ models on a very basic level. And then when we're looking at how it is that Christ loves us, how is it that we reflect that love towards one another? And are we reflecting that love towards one another whenever we're saying, I disagree with you, I don't like the decisions you're making, so I'm not going to let you make those decisions. And that is essentially what a vote no on disaffiliations does. So let's let's just talk briefly about practical implications. If if you vote no on disaffiliations, on any given disaffiliation, you're voting no on a, a body. You know, let me let me stop for one second. Within annual conferences, two worst case well, there are a lot of worst case scenarios, but two things can happen that would really be bad. One is just a blanket vote against all disaffiliations. That would be that would be a nightmare scenario. That would be um, that, that would be thermonuclear war afterwards. That would be lawsuits. That would be abandoned buildings. That would be that would be absolute utter destruction. A train wreck for ten years. You know, if if you look at Oklahoma Annual Conference, which has roughly four hundred churches, I think like three hundred eighty after last year, and then you're looking at fifty five churches wanting to disaffiliate, and you just say no to all of them. You're looking at fifty five buildings that are now full of, of people in conflict. They're either abandoned, people abandon their buildings, like happened to one of the three churches that, that was denied in Arkansas, or you have buildings where people are still duking it out about who's going to be in charge. You have buildings full of people who are going to now sue. And you do not want this. There is no way that this would be good. Now, even in the event that, that an annual conference says, no, we'll let most of them disaffiliate. We'll just vote on some of them individually. Even then you're looking at, one, the, the conference losing its ethical and moral standing as it coerces people into relationship they don't want to be in. But two, it, it has legal implications and financial implications that will almost certainly deplete the resources of the annual conference to do good. So as, as you're looking at, um, let's, let's talk very specifically. In my annual conference, the very biggest church left last year is very conservative, Asbury, it was contentious, but the, the conference let them go. There was no trying to hold on to them. However, the biggest church after them was St. Luke's in Oklahoma City, and St. Luke's took a vote to everybody's surprise because Aileen left. They took a vote a couple months ago. 93% wants to end its relationship with uh, the denomination. If you watch their presentation done by 
Dr. Bob Long and Wendy Lambert and a couple of their other people, they make the case as to why it is just a, a dysfunctional sick institution. And you can disagree with them, but in the end, when 93% of a megachurch, large church, says that they don't want to be in a relationship with you and you say, well, we're not going to let you go, how can that be? How can that result in anything other than a lawsuit? And so there are some people in leadership, there are some people who, who are just like this retired clergy I've been talking about, who just cannot, they feel so betrayed, they feel so hurt, they feel so enamored with the past and they want that back that they cannot allow for them to go and they are going to fight, they are going to fight with every instrument they have to retain them. And I don't know if they're really thinking about what it looks like six months, six years down the line. But I can, I can, I can just virtually guarantee that if, if an annual conference, well, if you just look in at Arkansas, in Arkansas, two of the three churches that they said could not leave have now filed charges. They're having a long, prolonged process. There is going to be a legal battle. And maybe in some places, conferences are going to win. But oh my gosh, in, in some places they could lose. And how, how much is that going to deplete the resources of the annual conference? And as you're just looking at the, the impact, so best case scenario for my adversary here, if there is a minority of people who lose a vote, 33% or less of a local church that lose a vote to um, uh, stay UMC, and the annual conference turns their local church down and says, okay, here, loyalists, people who wanted to stay UMC, here's your building back. That is a hateful thing to them because even if they're rich, they're not going to be able to fill out those buildings. You know, after a, a loss of a vote, if there's not a lawsuit, all the conservatives are leaving. All of the people who just wanted to leave are gone. You know, they're either staying and fighting or they're leaving. Either way, you have this minority, this institutionalist minority that then is going to have to do maintenance and upkeep and is going to be reminded every time they gather in that building of, of this whole chapter that they lost, that the other ones um, uh, left. And now they, they're supposed to, here's all this talk of mission. Well, now they've got to do all this mission, undermanned, underfunded. Uh, it, I think it's a cruel thing to do. I think it's a cruel thing to do to a minority to say, here, we, we, we shut the bad guys down. Here's your building. Do the right thing with it. And they're just going to be in emergency mode. I, I, I think there's some people who are entertaining a fantasy. Okay, we'll finally have gotten rid of the malcontents. Now we can just fill it up with all these people that, that have been waiting to come in and I just think you're living in a fantasy. I, I don't think that, you know, when you look at denominations that cleared out the conservatives, do you see a bunch of people rushing in to fill their place? I'm not familiar with a single place that that's happened. I, I think that is a complete fiction. I think if you are shutting down local churches and saying, no, we will not let you disaffiliate, you are guaranteeing either a lawsuit or an albatross church that is then a drain on uh, not just conference morale, but eventually finances. I, I think you're setting up a long-term, dysfunctional, depressing train wreck. Um, I don't think it serves anybody. So as I'm, as I'm commenting, these are not comments of, I'm a conservative and we should do everything right for conservatives. I'm trying to exercise some empathy and go, actually, I don't think this approach of holding on to churches, disapproving disaffiliations, I don't think that's good for anybody. I think it's going to harm local churches. I think it's going to harm annual conferences. I think it's going to harm the whole United Methodist denomination. I think it's in nobody's best interest to do this. Maybe short-sighted, 
hey, we can get a hold of some real estate that we could then resale to offset some of the losses we're seeing. I think that that strategy is not only um, just wrongheaded or like, um, oh, not pessimistic. There's a better word for it. But also like the, the answer to the downsizing that we're seeing now is not denial. It's not shutting down your enemies. It's got to be a sober recognition of the, the tidal wave that's coming and responsible leadership is going to downsize appropriately, is going to see it coming and know how to with uh, to draw back some of the ambitious things that they've been doing. But if they're trying to maintain the ambitious mission, ministry, uh, things that require a lot of money, and they're going to seize property and assets to then resale and fund it, um, I, I don't think it's going to work out that way. It's going to be... Well, it's just a nasty way to be, and I don't think it's going to work out long-term. It might be a short-term... Cash, cash infusion, long-term, that's just not a way to be. I, I wanted to, to, to spend the last bit kind of anticipating things that are going to be said on the Florida Annual Conference. Hopefully not mine. Hopefully at mine will we'll, we'll be gracious and let people go. But if, if I understand the institutional forces at play, there are going to be a number of things said on the floor of different annual conferences that are not good. Um, they're not going to be helpful, and they're going to take people off guard. And there are a lot of people in the middle who are not going to know what to make of these, and they're going to go, ah, that sounds kind of right. Um, and so I, I wanted to go ahead and anticipate these. And again, I, uh, send this to delegates, people who who may not have anticipated these, maybe people who haven't seen annual conference before and don't know how contentious it can be. Um, and, and again, I'll say I hope everybody has very peaceable assemblies. But in the event that this sort of happens and they're – they're reviewing individual congregations, and they're trying to keep local churches in the fold. Um, I, I, here's here's some things I think would be said. So the first one is, look, this church is in a key area. The United Methodist Church needs to have a missional hold in this area. We can't let them go because we still need to reach this, this group of people here. Um, one of the things I would say to this is it would make sense to me if the United Methodist Church was the only church in the world, the only uh, Orthodox Christian body outside of which no one can be saved. If that were the case, then yes, we need a missional outpost in every community because we need to save everybody. But what if there are other churches that also offer the gospel and are doing wonderful missional work and saving souls? Well, then I'm not sure why it's so important that there's a United Methodist presence there. Is there? Are we under the impression that nobody else does mission right? Is, are we under the impression that, that nobody's got the gospel except for us? Well, if, if we're not willing to say that, then why is it so important that we maintain a missional foothold in, in a given community? I just, I, I think that's, I'm not sure that's a real argument. Um, I don't think that the people promoting it actually think that the United Methodist Church um, is the only representative of Christ in the world, and I, I I, just don't know how to validate that. I think it's something that sounds good. Oh, we need to have a missional foothold in this community. I would say that if it's really essential for there to be a United Methodist presence in a given area, but the people who are currently United Methodists don't want to belong to you, then the answer lies in a new church plant rather than co-opting a body that's already there and doesn't want to belong to you. Because remember, that's what this eventually comes down to in every scenario we're talking about. There's either, there's a group of people saying, we want to go, we don't want to be connected to you anymore, and saying, okay, well, we don't like that decision, but we will let you go. 
And I believe that's how Christ loves us. You know, Jesus doesn't make me follow him. Um, and then also in the local church, I can't make someone continue giving to my church and keep their membership in my church. This is, this is really an exceptionally dysfunctional scenario where we're looking at a, a, a supermajority. And it, remember, to get here, you have to have 66.7% of the, the membership vote say, we want to go. That's a supermajority. Anytime you're looking at a supermajority wanting to disaffiliate and the larger body saying, no, we're, you have to stay. There's something fundamentally just very off about that, that, that we can keep talking about details past that, but once you've gotten to that point where you're coercing someone into a relationship they don't want to be in, that's the thing that's fundamentally at play here. And so you would rather coerce a body that, that doesn't want to have anything to do with you anymore rather than start a new mission there that may not have a building, may not have a lot of assets, but at least has people on board. You would rather fight with a body that's against you or doesn't want to have to do with you rather than start something new at a place that has supposedly a great missional impact, a hunger for, for what the United Methodist Church does. I, if, the, if the market really is that open, if there's that clear a need there, then it just it's, it's hard for me to see how it is exactly that you can justify taking control of a, a building and assets that, that another community built, you know. This is this is something I wanted to counter, you know, there are a lot of people who say, man, we're really being gracious. We're giving these churches their buildings for pennies on the dollar. You know, these these buildings really belong to us and we're we're just being very gracious and letting them have it. I've heard that from a lot of conference officials. And I think that that shows a real disconnect from reality, which is the vast majority, 99% of these churches have been built 100% with the blood, sweat, tears, and dollars of the local community. People who, who uh, it's, when, when you just look at the church that I'm in right now, that wasn't paid for or built by the annual conference. It was paid for and built by local people here who now, there are, there are people alive today who are part of this building's uh, construction who now look at it like the conference is making them pay twice for their property, once to build it and then once to hold on to it. Now, I understand what it is legally, how it is legally. Everybody understands that, but legal is not necessarily what's right. And so there are churches complying right now, but there, there's, I think it's a very disingenuous and harmful thing to look at this and go, really, these are our buildings and we're being gracious, letting them keep it. Look, if, if, if they built it, if they paid for it, if they went through all the things involved in maintaining it, then it is not a ridiculous thing for them to hope to hold on to it uh, for the service of carrying forward the legacy and heritage of those who came before. Let's talk about another thing we can anticipate being said. We don't like how they handled the disaffiliation process. So whenever I watched the Arkansas conference talk through this, this was one of the things leveled. And, you know, I... I think anyone would be a fool to say that this convoluted disaffiliation process was done perfectly in every place. I think with everything in the church, you have to be gracious and you have to understand people are doing their best. And yes, there are bad actors, but if you do not allow a process to complete because there were bad actors in it, then just go ahead and call off every church because that's just a fictitious understanding of how it is that groups do things. There's always confusion. There's always information that's that's not good. There are always people in the works with impure motives. 
And I hate that that's the case, but that is reality on this side of heaven. And our leadership, especially our delegates to annual conference, need to understand that, that even though a process wasn't done perfectly, it can, and in this case does, accurately represent the interests and feelings of a local church. In order for a church to be submitted by the Board of Trustees to the annual conference, they have to go through a very defined process where the, uh, there was a lot of communication, there was a lot of um, interaction with the conference to at this point say, well, you know, so-and-so said something a little off, you know, there was this pamphlet that got passed around. Not only is it very, like, parental and diminutive, but also it's just... Um, it's disrespectful to the board of trustees that oversaw the process. It's disrespectful to the superintendent who oversaw the process. It has implications so far as like the capabilities of conference leadership, and it participates in a fictitious understanding of of decision making. So I, I just I think it sounds good, but really it's um, I don't know juvenile. It's a juvenile assessment of any process to say, well, it wasn't done perfectly, so let's not validate it. Um, a similar way of thinking is the third one, we don't like the pastor, you know, and I've been told that some people don't like me, and I understand that. It, it would be my nightmare if my churches were not approved for disaffiliation because some people don't like me. Um, I just think it would be really tragic for an entire community to be seen as um, an avatar of a pastoral personality who may or may not have had a, a heavy hand in its disaffiliation process. You know, I, I did my best to be ethical and above ground and, and not tip the scales in any way in my local churches. Um, but, you know, maybe maybe people are fine with me, but they're not fine, for example, with a large church pastor who made his desires known. And, and what do you know? The people's um, vote very much reflected where the pastor's sympathies obviously were. Well, then in that case, uh, the whole thing's off. I, I still think it has this mentality of uh, inferring that the people in this church were just mild, mindless sheep, these children who were manipulated by their mean pastor. Um, either church is for adults or it's for sheep, you know? And I understand Jesus calls us to be sheep of his flock, and yes, we should unquestioningly follow him, but uh, that's not the real relationship we have with our pastors. And if, if someone's pastor has to be perfect in order for the congregation to make a responsible decision, um, that has a number of problematic implications that just seem silly to entertain. I, I just think that would be really tragic if the will of an entire congregation is annulled based on what are perceived to be character flaws based on their leadership. Uh, another thing that is probably going to get said, we uh, we have sentimental connections to this location. You know, here's where I grew up. Here's where I did ministry for a few years. Here's where I was married. Here's where someone I loved was buried. You know, this is something that we run into in local churches around anytime you want to change anything. You know, there's there's a sentimental reaction. And it's it's funny to me that, that pastors who have dealt with the frustrations of local churches that just want to become mausoleums rather than mission centers— they just want to ensconce everything as it has been and never change. We deal with that, and we rail against laity who can't change. And then we get together as an annual conference, and we cannot stand change. We cannot say, hey, yes, this is where I had some memories in the past, but things now need to change because the present is not the past. There's just this real lack of self-awareness where we are re-perpetuating the dysfunction of the local church on on a on a larger scale, I, I think just part of being an adult is is reckoning with the fact that things change, institutions change, 
Mission fields change. Our understanding of reality changes. And the, the, our present actions need to match present realities rather than past dreams. Um, now, that's not to say there's no room for the dreams of the past. That's just to say that there's a dialogue in place in which present realities often need to trump the hopes of, of previous ages. And I think part of being an adult is reckoning with the disappointment of unrealized hopes. And I think that is what we are dealing with within the United Methodist Church. I know some people really thought we were figuring something out that no other denomination had ever figured out before, and we were going to do it where everybody else failed. And what's required in this moment is the humility to acknowledge, no, we bit off more than we could chew. We, we started a project in earnest that we're not going to be able to see through. It's become toxic and hurtful, and we need to allow those who are, who are being hurt, those who are um, unhappy, to leave. Um, you can't take away someone's sentimental connection to a place. But also, our sentimental connection is not based on those material items staying exactly as they are. As anyone who's ever, you know, I went back to my childhood home at Holdenville United Methodist Church that I grew up in, and they demolished it, and they built a new thing, but nothing takes away the membership, the memories and connections I have with that old property. Um, and I just think pastors in particular need to remember <laughs> these things. Um, all right, let's go on. The next one is uh, we need to maintain conference mission and ministry. So that's that's against letting any disaffiliations take place. If, if we allow these churches to go, we're no longer seeing these apportionment dollars. We're not going to be able to maintain the conference infrastructure that we built up, and we have a lot of good mission and ministry that happens that is going to fall apart without these dollars. So we need to hold on to them to maintain the good things. And I just think there is this... Um, this is what communism operated at, like in the USSR, where we just have these big things that we're doing that we need to maintain, so we need this whole sector over here to work as slave labor for us. You know, it's not exactly the same thing. This is a metaphor. But the thing is that, that one of the ways in which capitalism is, is a different model from communism is it's based on consent and private rights and conduct. And if you are constraining churches that want to leave so that you can extract money from them to maintain things that are important to you. I just don't see how you fit that with Jesus ethically. That's That just seems nuts to me that anyone would actually say this and think that this is an acceptable way to fund ministries. Um, I, I went through financial ministry training with Horizons, uh, which is a, a... Anyway, it doesn't matter. One of the things that they say is that people fund what they want to fund. If you're doing good work, people will want to give money to you. And if people aren't giving money to you, well, that's because you're not doing good work. You're not, you're not demonstrating how it is that you're glorifying God and how it is that you're... Um, and having, having done these principles in a limited sense in poor rural Oklahoma, I can tell you they work. Whenever you do good work, people want to give you money. But if people are only giving you money because you're constraining them, then that's like, that's feudal Europe. I mean, that's, that is not a model that represents the, the free will of Christ and the free will covenant we have in him, it's also just not a workable long-term financial model. There's going to be dysfunction that ruins that system. Um, we need to protect and advocate for those who want to stay UMC. I already kind of addressed this. Yes, there are people who want to stay in the United Methodist Church whose, whose local churches vote to leave 
even if you give them their building back, it is going to be an albatross. You are not helping these people by keeping them in the, the property after this. Uh, 99% of the time, it is not going to work out. And these people are going to be really sad years down the line that we didn't work out a more gracious option. Another one is uh, we just don't think it passed by a large enough majority. So there, you'll find some conferences saying, okay, 90% and up churches, yeah, you can go, but anything below that, we'll review you. So they did that in Arkansas. And I just think that is, um, that is not an informed understanding of the proportions needed for cohesive group action on any level. You know, so I think we expect like overwhelming votes all the time if there's to be a, I mean, yes, if you're going to talk about a consensus, but if you're going to talk about a, a body being able to function after a decision, what we're talking about here is every single church has achieved a supermajority. And maybe, maybe there will be some for whom that's, that's not enough, but even so, the opposite case surely isn't enough. I mean, if you're looking at 33% or less wanting to stay, then that's when you're really looking at what is not a viable body. So I, I understand that there are some people who'd really like it to be 80 or 90%. But remember, this, this was something that the General Conference voted on whenever it created paragraph 2553. And it really isn't appropriate for local churches or local annual conferences anyway to decide that the General Conference didn't know what it was doing. Um, it, it passed legislation. It's the annual conference's job just to, to do it. And the fact that a lot of conferences are not willing to do so has huge ethical implica implications that are very concerning. Um, the next one is, this church is here today because of support given it by our conference in the past, and they owe it to us to stay. I just think on a basic level that that fails. You know, um, if I'm saying, uh, uh, you know, look at my wife. I bought all these clothes on her back. I bought that ring on her finger. I've, I've paid for our kids. She can't leave me. She owes it to me to stay. That is not a good marriage to be in. Uh, she would be within her rights to um, be very unhappy in our marriage and want to go, and I would be a bad man for holding on to her. And I understand when I use that metaphor, a lot of people check out, and they're like, you're not the abused spouse. We're the aggrieved spouse, you know. But if that's the case, then why are you holding on to us? You know, that, that makes no sense. I, I would like it if there weren't an aggrieved spouse. You know, I would like it if we wouldn't even look at this as a marriage. We didn't make like lifetime vows till death do us part. These local churches just joined a movement that they identified with and didn't really account for the fact that they were not going to be able to get out if, if this point arose. You know, that if you travel back in time, I have no doubt the vast majority of people sitting in pews, giving money to their uh, Methodist church, Methodist Episcopal church, MEC South, uh, United Methodist Church, I really don't think hardly any of them understood that with this trust clause thing, they can never get out. But even if that were the case, you know, we had 2548.2 where quietly a lot of churches were allowed to go for a long time. And now we have 2553 in which the language has been, there is a limited time right Local churches have been given a right to exit the denomination according to these provisions. And if, if they have met those provisions and engaged the, the, the process in good faith and they've been recommended by the board of trustees, then to shut that down for any reason is in a very basic sense unethical and unjustifiable. I, I really think it will compromise a lot of consciences. I think a lot of people, if they vote not to let local churches go, 
we'll look in the mirror in five, ten years and go, oh, man, I was wrong. And I, I just don't want that for anybody. Um, this church is here today. I already addressed that. Okay, the last one I thought of is we don't want a bunch of churches getting out and bad-mouthing us. We aren't going to aid our enemies. So as it is, the institution holds a great deal of sway over clergy that are unhappy and over local churches that are unhappy. There's a lot of fear that if, if we speak out openly about how we feel and how we see things, that there will be retribution from above, uh, that, that someone in my position might get fired, that, that local churches will be sent clergy that, that don't meet their needs or um, are hostile. You know, there, there are a lot of fears about the power that the institution holds. Well, if we keep these churches under our thumb, we can keep them from bad-mouthing us, but if we let them go, then they're going to say some nasty things. They're going to they're going to help the global Methodist church, and the global Methodist church is, is, we don't like them. They're our enemies. So let's not help our enemies. Let's keep these people under our thumb, and they'll eventually bleed out, and we don't have to worry about them. The word I was looking for earlier was cynical, and I would say that this is a really cynical way to be in the world. And I'm not going to say you're wrong. I think there are clergy that the moment they get out are going to be singing hallelujah. I can't, I'm so glad I got out of here. I think there are going to be plenty of churches that forever keep a bad taste in their mouth about the United Methodist Church and use their funds to participate in very different ministries um, that stand against the way that the United Methodist Church... I, I think a lot of those fears are well-founded. But if your answer to that is to constrain people and coerce people into relationships they don't want to be a part of, that's just fundamentally wrong and ridiculous on, on, on a basic level. It's just ridiculous. But there's also this thing called righteousness that we have to be concerned with. And Jesus was maligned and insulted, but he didn't constrain people um, against their will uh, to remain silent. He didn't control their speech or their actions or their budgets. He modeled righteousness, and then they condemned themselves by the way that they rejected him and spoke of him. And I don't, I understand that there are institutional forces at play, that there are monetary forces at play, political. Uh, that there's real politic going on here. I understand all that, but the thing is, when you have this thing called the Bible and this, this, this hero of Jesus, then it is not unrealistic or silly for someone like me to hope that the church behaves in a way different from other institutions. I really think that we should be able to expect bishops, conference leadership, and just regular delegates, salt-of-the-earth Christians, to behave in ways that worldly entities would not and to deny themselves, and to not behave in ways that um, I, I've described as cynical or childish or juvenile. And I think my hope is, as I've gone through this, as I've kind of like given you a portrait of how I see through, I, I don't imagine that this is at all comprehensive, and I'm sure that I've said one or two or maybe ten really stupid things. But my hope is that any delegates in particular who watch this, that, that you just think through these things a bit more, that you ask these basic ethical questions of righteousness and holiness, that you, you measure this rhetoric against the person and work of Christ Jesus. And um, with so many things in life, I just think the wise position is, what do I want to regret in the future? Which, which side of this coin would I rather regret? And at least for me personally, if I put myself in the shoes of an institutionalist, a liberal, a progressive, a centrist, someone who's staying with the institution, and I realize there's a lot of conservatives staying with the institution, and I, I I think that's that's great. I think you're going to be a, a wonderful witness. But would I rather regret holding on to someone against their will and potentially causing great fallout in a local church and great legal consequences, or would I rather 
lets a church go that then badmouths me, takes money away from me, and hurts my feelings, and takes some sentimental stuff that belongs to me. And that's no small thing. That sounds terrible to me. But at least if you let them go, your conscience is clear. But if you hold on, I mean, it, let me just tell you, I grew up in the United Methodist Church. I grew up in this annual conference. And I know there are some people who think very fondly of the work that's gotten done over the years. And I'm not going to say it's all been bad. There's been some great work done. But there's been a lot of dysfunction along the way. There's been a lot of people who lost their jobs and livelihoods, lost their sanity and mental health because of the dysfunction of trying to make something work that doesn't work. Part of the reason I started this channel is because I know so many conservatives who are just seething in anger and resentment at these people that have constrained them for some of them decades of their lives. And I know liberals within the church who hear me say this and they're going, what? What are you talking about? We get along great here. And I'm just, you know, this is one of the things I have against conservatives. They have not spoken up in the past when they felt abused. They haven't been bold. And I think some people genuinely don't know. I think other people genuinely don't care. And I think for those people in particular, your hearts have been seared. And you, I hope that God brings you to a place of repentance because everyone's made in God's image. And, and none of us should be spitting on someone else, especially when we're tied to them. So anyway, I didn't have a clever way to wrap this up. Um, and I know this... I didn't have a lot of the resources and charts and graphs I usually do, but like I said, this is, I'm thinking of it as a think piece. I hope it's useful. If you thought it was useless, I don't know why you stayed till the end of this video, but God bless you. If you think it's useful, I would I would have you promote it. I would have you send it around. Um, I hope that everybody has annual conferences that are gracious and amicable. I, I hope we fulfill this dream that we we're having. We knew this division was coming for decades, right? We, we've been writing about it the whole time. We've been saying, we're going to do it better than these other denominations. So far, we're not doing well. I'm hoping that 2023 is the year that we turn around and go, you know what? The spirit of the protocol for peaceful separation, that was a good spirit. We're going to live into that. We're going to let churches go that want to go. So let, let's look at Great Plains Annual Conference. or uh, you know, There are other models... I've reported on some that are amicable. Let's try and do that. Let's not have another Arkansas annual conference where people are, are alleging things on the floor and bringing up talking points that are just hateful and hurtful and we have lawsuits afterwards. I would like to think nobody wants that. And if you have a heart of peace, like I hope my heart is of peace, then if people want to go, let them go. And if you suffer for it, Jesus sees that, and we believe in a God who makes all things right. And I don't think that that's a cheap thing to say. I think this is an opportunity for us to show the faith that we have. And at least from where I'm standing, there's only one way to do it in this present circumstances, and, that, and that's to honor the thoughts and feelings of others. I do realize I have one more thing to say. <laughs> And it's on a, an ecclesiological level. There's some th theology around the Methodist movement, whether or not we're connectional or congregational. Um, and I've, I've heard this lifted up by leaders in the United Methodist Church just saying, well, you know, the local church is not um, its own boss. Really, it's the boss of these, these larger organizations, and it, it can't do as it wants. And I think that applies when a local church wants to be a part of that body. You know, if, if we wanted to stay in the United Methodist Church and we wanted to do ministry in a certain way, 
but it didn't comport with the understandings of the denomination, then I think the denomination could step in and say, no, you, you can't do things this way and call yourself United Methodist. But it's another thing if, if a local church has said, we don't want to be with you anymore. We don't want to be tied in this covenant relationship anymore. Let us go. At that point, it is not right to say, no, we're a connectional body and you have to stay even though you don't want to. In a hyperbolic sense, that is slavery when someone is saying, I don't want to be with you anymore and you're saying you have to stay. I don't want to be hyperbolic. I just want to say that is a dysfunctional way of being if the clear will of an individual or a body is, I don't want to be with you anymore and you're saying, no, you have to stay. I think that that is morally repugnant and would have huge implications for uh, the moral standing of the institution, and then it would have a lot of long-term fallout that's, that's logistical and financial, and we've talked about that. But if, if, if you hear someone talking about this theology of connectionalism, that all depends on whether or not you want to carry, that individual wants membership in that body. But connectionalism disappears whenever the will of that individual or body is to withdraw from the group. John Wesley did not force preachers to preach for him uh, or societies to stay loyal to him. Rather, he said, if you want to do with me, then you have to behave in these ways. Otherwise, I'm just not going to write your class ticket. I'm just not going to support your society. So that's how connectionalism worked. It's not this inverted, I would say perverted notion that, okay, we have claimed you as ours. Now you you cannot leave, and you're going to do what we say, or we're going to hurt you. That's that's crazy. <laughs> All right, I need to I need to end this. So uh, God bless you for spending time with me. Thank you. I hope your annual conference, special call conference, goes well. I guess we'll see. I'll be reporting on this stuff. Um, pray for me. Uh, my spirit gets really distraught as I talk about this stuff, and and I, I speak because I I just think someone's got to be. So. Um, Pray that I don't uh, scandalize Christ in my conduct or my words, and that uh, that this is helpful. I hope it's as helpful as as I mean it to be. So, God bless you for being a part of this with me. God bless the United Methodist Church. Bye.